0: Okay, good morning. Um, I feel like we need a spoiler alert there. Um, we are going to be in Luke 10 this morning and talking through uh, a story commonly called the Good Samaritan, but but I wanted to pause for a minute and just reflect back on even the last month and a half that we spent talking about dynamic families and what a blessing it was to be challenged, to be, to be thinking about the ways that that the gospel speaks into our relationship so directly. Um, but it also got me, as I, as I was reflecting on it, it got me thinking about, you know, families typically, you know, nuclear families live together, and we live somewhere, and we live in a neighborhood. And, um, and in our neighborhood, this thing has been happening. It's yard sign season, right? Like, there's yard signs all over the place. Everywhere you go, you see yard signs. And in our neighborhood, um, we started to notice, like, a few months ago, we started to notice some yard signs popped up that didn't. Exactly, like right away, we couldn't associate them with a political movement or anything. Um, they just started to show up in front of houses, and and um, and so you know we had one neighbor that had one, and and another one showed up, and another, and another, and another, and another. And if you can't read it, it says no short term rentals in our neighborhood. And actually, that sign right there, the one in the middle with the fence right there. Um, in, in a very passive-aggressive way, that, that person has placed the feet of the sign in their yard, but actually the sign itself is leaning over into the yard of a house that's a short-term rental. Okay, So it's sort of occupying even that space, but short-term, short-term rental, essentially here's what happened. About a year or so ago, someone uh, had bought a house, rehabbed the house, and then uh, they're using it as an Airbnb rental. And um, I'm not privy to everything that's gone on in that house, though the scuttlebutt in the neighborhood is significant. Um, lots of lots of stories. When we walk the dog, um, it, it may or may not be functioning as um, as a place of uh, of of um, a, a brothel. Uh, it may or may not be a place for amateur video. Um, we don't know. But but the neighbor. This is the thing. The neighborhood newsletter. Okay, we have one of those. It's a classy neighborhood. Um, the neighborhood newsletter said there was a party there, and at that party, there may or may not have been sh- shots fired from a gun. So, we don't want, we, you know, corporately, don't want that in our neighborhood, right? And so, this has become a thing, literally, it's become a thing in our neighborhood, and it's pretty normal for us to want particular kinds of things from a neighbor, right? Um, we have expectations. There's things that, that we want from them. There's certain things that we, we believe that you know, we ought to be able to live and, and have from our neighbors, but also the, that we should be able to live the way we want to live in our neighborhood. And and we're actually, in this series, going to talk about this idea of being a neighbor. The series is called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And obviously, this is, this is a shout out to Mr. Rogers, right? And, um, and it would be, we'd be remiss. We're not going to camp on, on Fred Rogers with any great length in this, but, but there. What, what Mr. Rogers embodied was something that that was that was decent. Um, it was something about about others orientation. Um, it, it was it was a driven. If you know his story, it was driven by his faith. Um, but but he had just, just a sense of welcoming, and and no matter no matter who the person was, he had a sense of welcoming and warmth with others. And so we've chosen this as a way to just sort of think about our neighbors. Think about who is our neighbor, which is our the beginning point in this series. If we're going to talk about neighboring, if we're going to talk about being a neighbor, we, we have to begin by answering this question, who is our neighbor? So we're going, to, we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about this. And it actually says a lot that a word neighbor is used throughout the scriptures. Um, and it seems to be at the very heart of the gospel message and mission. And, and so what we're going to do, if you've got a Bible, um, feel free to turn to, to Luke chapter 10. It's a familiar story. Um, but it, this is a story commonly known as the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and, and we talk about this from time to time. This is probably not the first time that, that, that you, if you've been around LCC, that you've heard us talk about uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. But, but we wanted to, to go through this uh, with you and, and take a look at what, what, what Jesus had to say about being a neighbor. So take a look here at Luke chapter 10, and it's verse 25 is where we'll begin. And it says this, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, him being Jesus, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay. Now, first things first, there's, some, there's a lot of cultural stuff that's going to go on in this, and I'll try to provide as much background as necessary for us to understand this. But there's an interesting dynamic that takes place here, because this, in the first century, in the first century particularly in Judaism, it, this was a common practice, where the teacher would be sitting, and someone who was asking the teacher a question would actually stand in respect. So this lawyer takes the right posture, okay? He takes the right posture. It's a posture of respect where he's going to stand and ask his question. It's not, it's not threatening. It's not, it's not something that we might see it differently today. But this is, this is, uh, this is his, his posture of respect. But, but, it, but Luke tells us here in the passage that he was putting him to the test. So there's a, there's a facade of respect, but there's also something else going on behind the scenes He's putting Jesus to the test, and he asks what we understand, because we have a much bigger picture here, what we understand to be a, a question that's nonsense. It's a nonsense question, where he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and to, just to start there and say this, it's, the, the question is nonsense, it's so misguided, because you don't do anything to inherit something, right? We don't inherit, inherit because we did, we inherit because we are, right? Right? And so he's asking a question where he already has his categories mixed up. So, so we, we inherit because we are sons and daughters, not because we've done something to earn. But this, this, this lawyer, this, this teacher of the law, this, this sort of person who's an expert in the law, is posing a question that may sound high-minded, but, but even just at its face, it's, it's misguided. And so Jesus responds. He responds, in verse 26, he says, he said to him, he said to this, this lawyer, what is written in the law, how do you read it? Which is a great tactic for a joy, avoiding a trap, right? You tell me what answer it is you're looking for, and then we'll discuss that. Um, but tactics aside, Jesus, Jesus says, how, how, do you, how do you read this? How do you read the law? And he answered, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said back, you've answered it correctly, do this and you will live. Okay? Remember the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay? And Jesus plays along and says, here's the, here's the deal. Do those things. Now this was common talk for them. Um, this was this is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. It was it was embedded in the in in the the what we would call the Old Testament law. They would simply call it their Bible. And 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 they had they'd taken all of that and sort of narrowed it down to the, the base, the, the big picture. What is it? Love God and love your neighbor. Okay? It's, it's the same exact answer that Jesus gives in other places. Okay? He says the greatest commandment is love God and love your neighbor. He, like, essentially what he's saying, to what this lawyer is saying is, I'm on the same team as Jesus. right? And so we wonder if like, putting him to the test, was the lawyer actually asking, like, you know, are we on the same team? Maybe he was asking, like, hey, do we vote for the same candidates, okay? Are we we on the same page when it comes to the way that life ought to be lived, okay? And so so Jesus says, great, I'll play your game. Do these things and live. And, 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 uh, yeah, do this and you will live. You will have the eternal life you're asking for. So so he has this, um, this, this interesting response. Now, it's also buried in this because we have to, you know, we, we get the, the dialogue here between the two of them, but we don't necessarily get an opportunity to read Jesus' mind. But, but it's interesting in this that, that Jesus, he plays the game of do this in a way that might lead us to believe that he's sort, of, he's sort of needling at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in his day. Because by saying do this and you'll live, it doesn't seem to jive with, with what we've talked about with inheritance, it doesn't seem to jive with the misguidedness of the guy's question. And it doesn't seem to jive with what we're going to see in the rest of the passage. So in some ways, he may be saying, okay, you've spoken rightly. Now just do that consistently. Stop talking about it and do it. Maybe he's saying, like, okay, live like you're, you have an inheritance. Live like you're a son and a daughter. Um, maybe he's saying, um, you know, it's not about having the right answer. It's about living the right way. It's about, it's about trusting in a way that impacts your life. Maybe just in... in our common language, maybe he's saying, practice what you preach. Okay? Great. Now go do it. And it seems, it seems like, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a moment in the, in the dialogue there where, okay, conversation over. Go and do it. But there's more. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, it says, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, wait, 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 follow up. And who is my neighbor? Okay? And who is my neighbor? And this is clearly where we're going to camp. And it's, it's the reason that Jesus tells the story that we, we know as the, the good Samaritan. We're not, we're not 100% positive what he, what's meant by justify himself. It's, quite, it's possible that, that he's just trying to recover from an embarrassment. He sees himself as important. Jesus has maybe given him a dismissive answer. That's possible. That's one way to read it. Others have said um, that, that actually just a few chapters later in the book of Luke, it, uh, Luke is going to write about the way that he uses the same phrase, that the, the teachers of the law like to justify themselves. And it actually, he uses it to refer to, they liked to have other important people prop them up. Like, they liked to have um, um, uh, high-level endorsements, okay? So, so perhaps he's also in this looking for an endorsement from, at this point in time, Jesus, who, was, who had become a popular teacher. Maybe that's what's going on. We're not 100% positive, but he asks the follow-up question and and Luke records this, and thank God he does, because we get deeper insight into this this issue. The question of who is my neighbor—it's it's difficult for us to, to actually um, put ourselves in their shoes. This was a raging debate of the day. Okay, this was a huge debate. Um, they had arguments about this all the time. It was a very real question about how far does my do, does do. I extend myself before I exhaust my neighbor. Is it is it the people who live in a certain circumference around me? Is it the people who who, who are like in agreement with me about the way of life of with Yahweh with God? They they would have these debates and this, this was it was real it was significant and and what we can be certain of, what we can be certain of. There's a lot we can't, but what we can be certain of is that given the the context of the first century that this lawyer is asking for Jesus to draw a line for him, okay? He's asking for a clear line. And the line is, who do I have to love like I love the Lord, and who do I not have to love, okay? Give me a line, because here's the, the truth about lines, right? They they box us in, they bind us in, and let's be honest, they make us comfortable. Who Who, who do I have to... Who do I who do I have to love in a way? Who do I have to be kind to? Who, who who do I need to treat in a neighborly way, in a loving way, and who don't I need to? Tell me that so that I can function, I can operate within those boundaries, and I don't have to trouble myself with those who are outside those boundaries. The Jews had had um, had a long the, the, the Jews had a long history of using this and excluding people. Okay the literature that this lawyer would, would have probably been reading, the law that he probably would have been reading, because, because they had the Old Testament law, they had the written code, but there was an awful lot of interpretation. And in fact, for every line of the Old Testament, it's estimated that there's about 5,000 lines of interpretation in, in the Jewish history and Jewish law. And so, so they had a lot of interpretation of this. It's a little bit like what we live with today. Okay? I work in education when I'm, when I'm not around here. And, and the, the Ohio legislator writes laws, the Ohio Revised Code. And then they hand it off to the Ohio Department of Education who interprets it for us. Okay? So if, if we think about it this way, we could say God had given the law, he had spoken, but then they had hundreds, if not a thousand years of interpreting it for the people. And they piled interpretation upon interpretation and, and correction over correction. And, and it's no different from what we do today. But, but they, what had happened with this is that they had created these lines about who had to be, like which laws had to be observed by, by whom and which ones didn't. And so they would take, um, they would take some of the rules, even, even purity rules of the Old Testament, and say, they would, we would say things like it's unlawful for a man to take another man's wife as his own. They would actually, there were, there were camps, there were schools of thought that would say that only applies for a Jewish man who's taking another Jewish man's wife. If he's taking the wife of a Gentile, if he's taking the wife of a Samaritan, then that law doesn't apply to that occurrence. It would, there were different laws for, like, like well, it had to be paid back if you accidentally killed someone else's livestock. If it was a Jewish man, that he was your neighbor, and he had to be repaid in full, that's what the Old Testament law says. But if he's a foreigner traversing in your land, and you accidentally, you're, you don't owe him anything. Okay? They, had, they had gone round and round with this debate of who is my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And so this lawyer, what we—it's—it's it's easy for us to, to read into this that he's being a smart aleck, and he might have been, okay. But the honest truth too is he may have just been asking a question that was that was central to their understanding of what they believed to be the greatest commandment, what they what, how they read the law, what's most important. And so he asked that question: Who is my neighbor? And it leads Jesus to this story. This is the part where we're probably pretty familiar, but let's read through it again. Starting in verse 30, it says this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, wouldn't right now, wouldn't you be pretty bothered by Jesus? (laughs) Like, I asked for a line, you're going to tell me a story. Anyway, um, it bothers my kids. Um, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Jesus sets a stage that it sounds violent, and it is violent, and yet it's pretty, it was a pretty common way to talk about this. It's a common context. It's a context they would be familiar with. Maybe not necessarily like the, the being beaten, stripped part, but, but certainly the place they would have understood. There was a road that ran from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a lot of really fascinating and cool first century Jewish history to get into there that you can read about on your own time. But it was a fairly commonly traveled road. It would be like me saying um, there was a man who was walking down Cemetery Road. Okay? He was just walking down the road. And along the way, he was mugged and left there on the side of the road. Easy enough? Now, the thing that's different about that is that Cemetery Road has cars that go back and forth okay, on a regular basis. What we have to get in our head is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a busy road. but It was a busy road for the first century. And you'd go all day, and maybe no one would go down that road. And there were clearly no cars. It was, and actually, when we see images of this this area, there probably wasn't even like wagons or anything like that or large beasts. You might be able to get a donkey. It was mostly foot traffic. Okay? It was mostly foot traffic. And so so he he gives this context. Um, He's touching on a fear that people might have. Okay? He's touching on something that they might recognize. He's putting them in a place where they would say, hey, do you know why? You don't walk between Jerusalem and Jericho, like, alone, because this kind of thing could happen to you. It's kind of like, I grew up with a fear of windy roads through the mountains, because when I was a little boy, my dad told me that there were, like, robbers on, on a road. We were on a family trip. Well, I love my dad very much. Um, he's with the Lord now. But, but, like, he would tell these stories. And he tells this story about, like, highway robbers on this one particular road, and and, and I'm, I'm, my eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And to this day, I'm not kidding, when I'm on highway roads, if there's some, like winding hilly roads, if there's someone behind me, I start to get weirded out because that's where the robbers come from. So in, in some ways, okay, Jesus is saying, a man goes down the windy road <laughs> and the highway robbers come along and dry, run his car off the road and they, they, um, they rob him and strip him and leave him for dead, okay? All right, the horse is dead. Let's keep moving. Okay, so keep reading with me. Verse 30, 31, it says, Now by chance, and that's even Jesus saying, like, look, it's a road, it's a well-traveled road, but it's not likely someone's going to go by. But by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, the man lying there, he passed on the other side. Now this is the joke, okay? This is the part where people are like, haha, passed on the other side. This, this road is probably four to six feet wide. Okay? It is probably, it probably... The, the image that people have in their head, rocky boulders, thorns, and thistles all along the sides of it. Okay? It's not cemetery road. It's not you know, cross at the crosswalk and head down the other side and you've got you know, ample distance between you and that other person. This literally, for him to do this, I mean, it may be this wide, he has to you know, go around and go, go by this man. And it says he did this. He went by on the other side. And then he says in verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, this, th- these words, are, again, are not they're not random. Jesus is, is very specific in what he's saying here. And there's, there's, another, there's another cultural piece of this that's helpful for us to understand. Because the Jews of the day actually had, in this argument, in this debate about who's my neighbor, they actually had these sort of concentric circles. Okay. And, and the concentric circles went priests, Levites, and all the people. And by all the people, they meant all the Jews. All the nation of Israel. Okay? Priests were at the center of the circle. They had the highest responsibility in, in their faith. They had the highest responsibility in the temple. They, they were from, they had to be, uh, they had a lineage that was, that was passed down. Priests at the center. Levites helped carry out the work of the priests. They were, they were the workers in, 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 the, in the temple. And so the Levites were equally important but they were just kind of outside that central circle and then they would say the neighborly circle extended out to all sort of like all of the faithful Israelites all of those who genuinely had put their trust in in, in Yahweh okay and they would say that they would they would it was part it was it was like a part of their worship it would be like us saying like you know the elders the pastors and all the church okay like it's it's just a framework for thinking about who's in. Okay? Who's in. And Jesus is telling the story, and he says, a priest sees him, and he passes on the other side. A Levite passes sees him and passes on the other side. And the people listening that day would have said this, right? I know what's next. I know what's coming. And then a Jew, like all the people, one of us, comes by. Okay? But... It's not what he says. Verse 33. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this man on the side of the road. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You see, Jesus throws them a curveball. He throws them a curveball. But it's not just one curveball. There's, there's kind of like, it's like a double breaker somehow. And if you can throw that pitch, get signed up now to play. Okay? But, but, but it's, he, he's, it's not just a curveball that this guy's a Samaritan and not one of the people. It's not just a curveball that this guy is a Samaritan who is hated by the Jews, which we'll say more about in just a minute. The curveball in some ways is this. And think about this. The Jews and the the Samaritans had a terrible relationship. And it would have been one thing. It would have been an act of of extra compassion and kindness for a Jew to come upon a Samaritan and to do something kind for them. Right? That would be sort of like an expected move. That's an act of decency by one of God's people. But notice the the place that, that Jesus puts this. Because the Jews would have said, it's not, the Samaritans aren't even capable of that kind of act. That, 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 like These people, are they're cultists. They're, they're, they're evil. They're our mortal enemy. There is no category that a first century Jew would have had for a Samaritan to be the one who actually stops to offer aid and assistance. There's a million questions bound up in that 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 probably the, the, the lawyers in the area would have said like, well, what's he doing in the land anyway? Why is he traveling the road between Jerusalem and Jericho? He doesn't belong there. That's not his neighborhood. Why is he there? We don't want him there. Their perspective would have been, we don't want him there in the first place. What's he even doing now stopping to help a Jew? You see, they hated the Samaritans. They weren't orthodox or just, they weren't right. They, they worshipped God in, in, a, in, a, in a way that was... They, they actually viewed him worse than the Gentiles because it wasn't like they had false gods. They believed what they had done is they had taken the true God and twisted and perverted that true God into a way that he, they, weren't, they were no longer worshipping him in the truth. And so as the dispenser of compassion... Jesus tosses uh, something into the mix here that they just couldn't wrap their mind around. Maybe a righteous Jew would be heroic and stop and help someone, but certainly never a Samaritan. That's an act that's too good for them. It's too kind. So Jesus tells the story, and then he asks this question in verse 36 back to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor To the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the teacher of the law said, the one who showed him mercy or compassion. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Okay? So Jesus engages the debate, probably when he didn't have to. Remember, the the opening question was misguided, it was sort of nonsense. But he asks him this, this pointed question Who's the neighbor in the story? The priest? Clearly, the teacher of the law would have put the priest at the center of, of their religious and social and political world. He would have put that priest right smack dab in the center. That priest would have been his neighbor. The Levite? Yeah, he would have been my neighbor. But the Samaritan? The Samaritan. In fact, much has been made of this. So we'll just say it. Look, he won't even use the word in the response. It's a it's a clue. It's a it's insight into where this this lawyer, this teacher of the law, how, what he felt about the other, about this man, Samaritan, the story. Because he wouldn't even say Samaritan; he'd only say that team up north. Okay? He'd only say the one who showed compassion. Catch it. So so Jesus as he likes to do, he drops something interesting into this conversation. And it's something that sort of upends all of life, if we take it seriously. Because he says, our neighbor is not defined by any sort of line that we can draw. There are no concentric circles that I can draw large enough th- that, that all of my neighbors will fit in them. He says, being a neighbor is being someone who acts with compassion to, uh, to those who have needs. That's, that's a neighbor. A neighbor isn't defined by being in or out on some sort of external criteria. A neighbor is defined as the one who meets the needs of those who have them. So it's probably not great to call this story the story of the Good Samaritan. In fact, some ways calling it the story of the good samaritan robs the story of its power what it does is it says there's a bad group of people but amongst them there was one good one which just sort of reinforces our biases it wasn't like there was a bad group of people and there was one of them that wasn't the question that was asked the question that was asked is who's a neighbor what does it mean to be a neighbor and jesus says a neighbor is it's it's nothing it's none of the externals it's none of those things it's meeting the needs So it's easy to make it a story just about humanitarian compassion. And we'll apply it in a few minutes, but don't don't divorce the story from its real power of defining who we love and how we love. Our neighbor is anyone around us who has needs. Without limit. Anyone around us who has needs. So where where do we go with this? What do we do with it? And, and um, this morning I want to set up just um, a couple mile markers that we intend to use throughout this series. This is the first of, of uh, five that we're going to do in this, in this series. And I want to set up a couple mile markers to help us understand this. What do we, what, how, how do we approach this question of who is my neighbor? And then what do we do with it? And the first thing I want to say is this. Here's what we do about it. As, as we go along the road, we stop because we're surrounded by neighbors. Everyone we come across is a neighbor. We're not, we, we can't get ourselves off the hook by drawing a line and saying, yeah, but they belong to this other faith. Yeah, but they belong to that other area. Yeah, but they, belong, they, they have a different ethnic identity from me, or they, they don't believe the same things as me. They go into the voting booth, and they pull a different lever from me. We don't pull levers anymore, but right? I don't think. I don't. We, we're surrounded by people. And the neighbor is the one who stops along the road. The neighbor is the one who sees the pain and stops. They're everywhere. We're surrounded by people in need. Notice the second thing that he does is what it means to be a neighbor. It means that we get people the help that they need. Look. I'm not just saying this because it's like the pastor thing to say, but everything is spiritual, okay? Everything is spiritual. And yet I'm shocked in this story by how human the story is and how physical the needs that are met. Not once in this story is there a debate between the Samaritan and the Jew about which mountain is the right mountain to worship on. That's not what happens. There is no discussion. There is no debate. There's a need. And the Samaritan pours oil and wine on the wounds. This is an expensive gesture towards healing. He puts him on his own animal, finds an inn for him. It gives an amount of uh, the denarii, two denarii, which, is, which would be roughly um, three weeks' worth of food. It's best guess would be at somewhere around 1% or 2% of an annual income for a, someone living in first century Palestine. He focused on immediate needs. Look, hear me say this. When it's all said and done, people need to become sons and daughters of God. That's where the inheritance comes from. But along the road are people with pain. They have real needs. They're hurting. And we've got to stop and help them with their needs. It's not not social gospel. It's gospel with hands and heart to actually care about the pain of my neighbor. And then the third thing that the Samaritan does is he returns over time. It's not one and done. It's not here, now you're somebody else's problem. Here, can I hand you off to somebody who's better at this than I am? Man, I love to do that. That is, that is avoidance and defense tactic for Tom Burns, number one. Great in the moment, great in the crisis, but you know what? Could somebody else kind of hang in there with you on the long run? That would be great for me. He comes back. He says, Look, when I come back, when I return, I'm going to do everything I can to help this person and see that their health is restored. You see, and this is where we would say, there are needs that go beyond the physical. Of course, there are. We're focused on those. They're in our minds. We know that the hurting people need Jesus. We know it. And we want to be in their life when they know it. We want to be there when they recognize that their sin needs a healer. Right? And so we stop. We engage the pain. Address the immediate needs. And come back come back to see it through. So who is my neighbor? In the story, it's a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan. Again, it it throws such a wrench into the way we think about this. It wasn't a, a highly Jew reaching down to a lowly Samaritan. It was the lowly Samaritan caring for the needs of the Jew. And we're going to, I'll apologize up front, but not really, okay? We're going to talk about some neighbors that we have culturally in this series. And I, trigger warning, like some of this is probably, it bothers me. It's probably going to bother you. But who is it that you and I, who is it that we tend to avoid and step over? Who is it that we keep separate? We don't want them in our circle. Who is it that we feel doesn't deserve to belong to, to our tribe, to, to our faith? Who, who hasn't earned that? Who don't we have time for? Who, don't, who is it that we don't have a category for them to be included with us? Who is it? I don't know necessarily who it is for you, but come on. I've, I know in my head who I, I know. I'm fairly certain you can identify people that you put in those places. In the series, we're going to talk about these four. The foreigner. The racial or ethnic minority. We're going we're gonna to talk about our LGBTQ neighbor. We're going to talk about... We're going to do it, OK? We're going to talk about politics. Back to yard signs, right? What happens when you pull up to someone's house for an unexpected dinner invitation and they've got that sign in the yard? Or what happens when you go on Facebook and you see the thing they're posting? What, what do we do with that, OK? Because this is the deal. Like it or not, those are our neighbors. Those are our neighbors. And Jesus has something to say to us about loving our neighbor. So we're going to spend time there in this series. But right now, stop. When, you, when we encounter the pain, stop. Don't walk around. Stop. Engage the pain. Be willing to hang in. That's our starting point. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, um, I ask for your help and your strength because this seems heavy and difficult. And I'm confronted with an awful lot of personal failure. And so, Lord, we ask um, for your help You've shown us a way. You've, you've erased our lines. Um, but now we need the strength to, to go to those places. We need the, the Spirit to move us. And so we ask that you would. God, I, I pray for the hardness in my heart towards those that I, I just believe don't belong. And I'm asking that you would, you would soften my heart. That you would um, you'd make your grace and mercy real to us. Help us as we, we cling to your truth. We hang on to, to, to what you've said. And at the same time, love those who don't do that. Who don't acknowledge you. Who don't seem to care what you've said. Please, Lord, help us not to be looking to justify ourselves with standing or with how how we can protect our circles. But teach us what it means to have compassion and mercy in the way that you've been merciful with us. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Amen.